There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and in fine linen and lived in luxury every single day. At his gate was um, laid a beggar named Lazarus, and he was covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time when the beggar died, the time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away, and Lazarus was by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross from there to us. The rich man answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that he will not, they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead was to go to them, then they will repent. Abraham replied, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if somebody rises from the dead. Amen. So here we have the story of the rich man and Lazarus, which is an absolute Sunday school classic. For those of you that have been brought up in the church, I'm sure that you've looked at this passage many times and coloured in all kinds of different drawings and all of that kind of thing. As I said earlier, if it's totally new to you, then do not worry at all. I'm hopefully going to explain this to us as we go through this story that Jesus told together. And like all of Jesus's stories, it's fairly dramatic. It contains some fairly vivid vivid imagery. And it's just a great story. Jesus is one of the best, well, the best storyteller that has ever lived. And this story is no exception whatsoever. Now, as we read it, um, it seems a little bit shocking and alarming. So I just want to set it into its context so that we can begin to understand what Jesus is actually teaching us through this passage. So for the last two weeks here at St. Thomas's, as I've said, we've been going through Luke's gospel. Two weeks ago, we were in Luke chapter 15, Now, Jesus tells lots of stories in Luke chapter 15 about things that are lost. He tells the the parable of the lost sheep. Then he tells the parable of the lost coin. Then he tells perhaps what is his most famous parable, the parable of the lost sons. And all of these parables are about somebody finding something that is lost and then throwing a party at the end to celebrate. Now, Jesus tells these parables in response to religious people having a go at him for partying and for celebrating with those that were on the edges of society, for celebrating and partying with those that religious people should not be seen celebrating with. That is why Jesus tells those stories, because he's passionate about seeking and saving the lost. That's Luke chapter 15. Now, last week together, 
We looked at, if we looked at Jesus' most famous parables in Luke 15, last week we looked at Jesus' least understood and least read parable, in my opinion, the parable of the shrewd manager, which is basically a parable about how we need to give everything that we have, all of our resources, all of our wealth, all of our stuff, to build the kingdom of God, basically to join in with seeking and saving the lost. And in that context, last week's parable makes sense. And then in that context, this week's parable makes sense because here Jesus is giving us an example not to follow. Here we meet somebody who has so much stuff, but uses it all for himself. So this week is just a really practical example of what we should not live like in a way that will not be good for us. Now, to make his point, Jesus introduces us to two characters, to the rich man and to Lazarus. So look at verse 19 with me. We're introduced to a man who is so wealthy that he's dressed in purple. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to you today, particularly if you're wearing purple. I see a number of us are. In Jesus's day, to wear purple was a real statement of economic. You'd reach like the peak of the peak of society. Only royalty wore purple. It was a really, really expensive dye to manufacture. So here's this guy. He's living in purple. And Jesus says that he lives in luxury every single day. Now, we know this because he's um, having lavish banquets and he lives in a gated mansion, which in Jesus's day, again, was very, very rare. Now, Jesus is just painting the picture. This guy is super, super wealthy. Now he's so wealthy that there is so much food on his table that he doesn't even notice that some of it's falling to the floor. He doesn't even notice that, I don't know what he had on his table, but he doesn't even notice that it's just dropping to the floor. I don't know if you can even comprehend having that much food, that you don't even notice piles and piles of it just dropping to the floor at your parties and not even noticing. By contrast then, we are then introduced to Lazarus. Now, Lazarus is incredibly poor and he's probably crippled. We think that he was probably crippled because he's lying down at the rich man's gate. He's not standing. He's not even sitting. He's lying down. So he was, he was probably um, rel- well, fairly disabled. And he's absolutely desperate for some food. He is so hungry. Now, if that wasn't enough, his body is absolutely covered in sores. Um, which we don't know what they were exactly, but they, were, they would have been pretty gross. And the wild dogs that roamed around the villages in Palestine basically saw them as a snack. And so wild dogs were basically coming and feasting on Lazarus's sores. Now, these wild dogs would have been considered unclean because they would have licked dead animals that would have um, you know, been laid the streets of first century Palestine. And because they're then licking Lazarus, Lazarus then becomes religiously and ceremonially unclean as well. So he's not even allowed in a temple. He's not allowed in a place of worship. He's not allowed in the company of religious people. He's basically excluded from society. Now, Jesus obviously is setting up these two characters in direct contrast to one another. So the rich man is clothed in fine clothes, clothed in finery, while Lazarus is clothed in sores. The rich man is throwing away food while Lazarus is scrounging for it. The rich man is in and considered clean while Lazarus is out and considered unclean. 
Now, the original hearers of this story that Jesus tells would have drawn two conclusions from this story so far. They would have said to you, had you talked to them about this story that Jesus had told, the rich man must be very blessed and very holy and must have lived an amazingly righteous life. Because look how blessed he is. He's got all the food that he wants. He's got the most amazing clothes. He's dressed in just the clothes that royalty would be found in. He must have lived an amazing, righteous life. Lazarus, by contrast, must have been somehow evil or unholy. And so God is judging him. Hence why he's got all of, you know, all of these problems that he has. Now, that's what the first hearers of Jesus' teaching would have thought. But as often with the teaching of Jesus, these things come Jesus' teaching comes with a twist. Now, one thing I want to notice in this parable, and you look through the verses with me, Lazarus never speaks. Never speaks at all. Now, I think that's, Jesus does that on purpose, because even had Lazarus spoken, nobody would have heard him. Nobody would have heard him because he was, he was considered out. He was considered unclean. His social status was so low that nobody would have listened to him even had he spoke. Now, Lazarus has a need that the rich man could easily meet. Literally just give him a bit of food, a bit of bread. And yet the rich man is not even doing that. Now, before you think that this is just another sermon from another vicar all about money, um, the main problem that Jesus has with the rich man isn't actually his money. Jesus doesn't have a problem with the fact that the rich man is throwing parties. We know that Jesus is for parties. In fact, that's the whole reason why Jesus has given us, given us these series of teachings, because the Pharisees have been complaining that Jesus is partying too much. The main problem that Jesus has with this rich man is that he is not using his resources to build the kingdom of God. The main problem that Jesus has with this rich man is that he's not using what God has given him to bless others in society. He's not using what God has given him to seek and save the lost. He's not using what God has given him to, to bless them, those on the margins. Now, it's very easy, and it would have been very easy for um, the first hearers of this story again, just to look at the rich man as Jesus was telling the story and think, gosh, he must have been happy. He's got everything that he needs, needs. He must be so fulfilled. Well, Jim Carrey, who um, arguably reached the height of fame and worldly wealth, he once said this, I think that everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it is not the answer. Now, how many celebrities have you heard say similar things in interviews? Getting rich and famous, accumulating more and more stuff is not the answer to happiness. When I was training to be a vicar, and this must have been about seven, seven, eight years ago now, I did my parish placements in, um, I did a month in Uganda, in one of the poorest parts of, of Uganda, in a little town called Kabali at the cathedral there. And we did, Ellie and I did a month there before then flying out to Newport Beach, which is an hour south of Los Angeles, the wealthiest town in the whole United States of America. In fact, the, the wealthiest town in the, on the planet. 
the wealthiest town in the, in the wealthiest nation. And we had tw a 12-hour layover back in London. So we had a month in Uganda and then flew straight over to, to Newport Beach where everybody in the church congregation that we were um, working at over there I was at least a millionaire, if not multi-millionaire. I mean, some of these people had obscene amounts of money. Now, I can honestly tell you that the people in the United States that we met were no happier than the people that we met in Uganda. They were no more fulfilled. They were no more content with life. They had no more peace. They had no more joy. Because money, accumulating stuff, does not make you happy. Now, we see this even in this country. Of, of course we do. You know, the world is supposed to be on this continuous economic growth chart. You know, um, inflation rises every year. The economy is supposed to grow every year. And if it doesn't grow, then all hell is going to break loose, apparently. And yet, while this is told to us by politicians and by all the media and all kinds of people, that the world is on this continual perpetual journey towards becoming better and happier and wealthier, it's true today that 1.2 billion people around the world live off less than one pound a day. And yet we're told that economies are always growing. 1.2 billion people living off less than a pound a day. The amount of people that are just sat in this block of pews here, um, the same number of people that sat in this block of pews here own the same amount of wealth combined as half of the world's population. In fact, you could fit the people that own 60% of the world's wealth and resources in this church building. Now, does that sound to you like the world is getting better, that we're on a perpetual march towards betterment? Now, the UK itself has an abundance of wealth. Just two years ago, we're, we're in the rush towards Christmas season now. I was in a supermarket just yesterday, and they had aisles just dedicated to Christmas. And um, people who deal with economic statistics and all of these kinds of things have just released the Christmas spending figures for two years ago. Apparently, it takes that long to catch up. Two years ago, in the UK, in the two weeks running up to Christmas, we spent £25 billion on retail. Now, John, church warden John, did the maths early and worked out that that was an average spend of £447 a head. Unbelievable amounts of money. And yet it, it's not making us happier because that very same Christmas, there was a call to, the, call to the Samaritans, one call every six seconds over the Christmas holidays. There were 8.2 million cases of anxiety reported last year alone in the UK. Many of them reported around Christmas time. Loneliness. We're apparently the most lonely generation that has ever lived, despite being the most connected. This stuff, all of this stuff that we have, does not make us happier. Um, a church leader in Serbia once said this. Unfortunately, there are poor people in our society whose parents couldn't give them anything except money. Unfortunately, there are poor people in our society whose parents couldn't give them anything except money. That's so true, isn't it? And this is exactly what Jesus teaches. Jesus would say just four chapters earlier, 
that wealth does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Those words literally come out of the mouth of Jesus in Luke chapter 12. You can be rich, but have absolutely no money because you can be rich in the things of the kingdom of God. You can be poor and have all of the money in the world. C.S. Lewis said this, the only things that we can keep are the things that we freely give to God. What we try to keep for ourselves is just what we are sure to lose. Now we're going to see this in a fairly dramatic way in just a few verses in this story. Now Jesus is teaching us that hoarding wealth, hoarding stuff will get you nowhere. Instead, give what you've got, your talents, your gifts, your homes, your degrees, give what you have to build God's kingdom. Now, the early church were really famous for this. Emperor, Emperor Julian, who was an um, atheist Roman emperor in the 300s, who really didn't get on with the church, he wrote about why the church was growing so quick in the 300s, and he wrote this. These impious Galileans, Christians, feed not only their own poor, but ours as well. This coming from an atheistic, anti-Christian Roman emperor. He reckoned that the reason the church was growing so quick was because of how generous the early Christians were. Wouldn't it be fantastic if churches in this city, churches around the nation, this church, St. Thomas's, was known for this radical level of generosity? That people in government would say, look at those people at St. Thomas's. They're so generous that they don't just look after the needs of, them, of themselves, but they bless everybody that is around them. That would be a wonderful thing for people to say about us. Now, one of the reasons that we should behave like these early Christians is because God has such a heart for everybody, rich and poor, but he particularly has a heart for the poor. And this is why we're to give everything that we have for building God's kingdom, because God's kingdom is a kingdom for everybody, rich and poor, young and old. It's for everyone. Now, this is actually seen in, in the name of Lazarus himself. So for those of you that uh, know some of the parables of Jesus, did you know that Lazarus is the only named character in any of Jesus's parables, examples or stories? He's the only named character, which is interesting because while Lazarus in the story that Jesus tells was out and was unclean, nobody probably knew his name and people just walked on by and certainly didn't give him any food. Jesus is making the point that he's known to him, that he's known to God. And the same is true for all of us. If we feel like we're anonymous or that nobody loves us, nobody cares about us, the fact that Jesus names Lazarus reminds us that God calls all of us by name. There's an amazing verse that I love in Isaiah 43 that says, even when you go through waters of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burnt up. For the Lord, the God of Israel, your Redeemer, has called you by name. You are his. And that's what we discover in this parable today. The second thing about Lazarus's name is that it's derived from the word Eliezer, which means God helps. Even when we feel that we're on our own, or we feel that some people are on their own and, they, and that they have no hope, God promises to be their help and their strength and their source of joy and comfort and peace and all of those things. 
Now, with all of that in mind, Jesus' story suddenly jumps forward a few years in its chronology. And a dramatic role reversal seems to have taken place. Lazarus is in heaven by the side of Abraham, and the rich man is in Hades, or hell, and appears to be in eternal torment. And he's desperate, this rich man, he's desperate for just a tiny bit of water to quench, to quench his tongue. So while on earth he had everything, wouldn't even give Lazarus a scrap, now he has nothing. And he's crying out for Lazarus to come and just give him a drop of water so that the pain on his tongue can be cooled a little bit. Now, the quote that I read from C.S. Lewis just a moment earlier now makes so much more vivid sense, doesn't it, in the light of this, of this story. The only things that we can keep are the things that we freely give to God. What we try to keep ourselves is just what we are sure to lose. You see, the rich man hoarded stuff just for himself. And now suddenly he has absolutely nothing. In fact, it could be argued that he has worse than nothing. Now, what Jesus is teaching us is simply this. You cannot take your bank account with you. You can't take your stocks and shares. You can't take um, your fancy houses. You can't take your cars. You can't take your degrees. You can't take any of that stuff with you to the next life. These things that so often the world uses as a measure of success, they are not to define us. They shouldn't define us now, and they certainly won't define us later. Well, what should define us then? If wealth and possessions and stuff shouldn't define us, what should define us? Well, the answer comes in the next bit of the story. You see, the rich man has five brothers. And the rich man's discovered that there's no way out of his current predicament. There's no way out whatsoever. And we can presume that this rich man's brothers had the same amount of wealth as him because the rich man wants Lazarus to go and warn them not to live in the kind of life that he's led so that they won't end up where he has ended up. Abraham replies, well, they've had all the warnings that they needed. They've had the word of God. They've had Moses and the prophets. And Jesus is basically saying it was pretty clear. You know, the Old Testament is a pretty amazing ancient document, I think unique in the context that it was written in terms of its heart and compassion for the poor, in terms of its heart for the foreigner and for the alien, its heart for looking after those who were, who were, who were widows and had absolutely nothing. The Bible is always taught that money is a resource, not a reward. It is always taught that money is to be used and not hoarded. The Bible is always taught that money is to serve not to become a master. Now, the rich man in the story, he looked free, didn't he? He had his big house. He had his purple clothes. He had his fancy linen. He had his lavish parties. But really, he was not free at all. In fact, he was one of the most enslaved people that Jesus ever spoke about. Why? 
Well, Jesus had just said in the verse before the one we started reading today, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. And yet here, this rich man is a total slave to money. Money has become his God. And so he's totally enslaved by it. There's absolutely no freedom at all. Now, I'm going to talk about a man just briefly called David Foster Wallace. And David Foster Wallace was a top American novelist and author. He was not a religious man. In fact, he considered himself to be an atheist. And he sadly committed suicide um, and cut his life short. But just a few relatively short period of time before he committed suicide, he was due to give a speech to a bunch of students who were graduating from their university. And I'm going to read out a portion of his speech. And as I read it out, bear in mind that this man claimed not to be religious and to be an atheist. He said this to these graduating students. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much everything else that you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you get your meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. And that's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths inside before your loved ones finally bury you. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will never have enough power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect to be seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious things about these forms of worship is not that they are evil, it's that they're unconscious. It's the human heart's default setting. His main point, of course, every body worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And herein lies the rich man's problem. His wealth per se isn't the problem. It's his heart. It's that with his heart, he wasn't worshipping the one true God. He was worshipping money as his God. And in the end, as that, that speech that I just read out shows, the thing that he worshipped literally ate him alive and destroyed him. Now, I believe with all of my heart that the only thing that will not destroy us, the only thing that we can worship that will not destroy us is Jesus. I agree with this atheist novelist. Everything else that we worship will destroy us. Worship sex, you'll never have enough. Worship money, you'll never get enough. Worship power, you'll never have enough. Worship politics, you could make it to the top and you'll still feel empty. Your bank account will not die for you. That football team that you invest so much money in and so much time in will not die for you and rise again. The only person, the only thing in the universe that has done that is Jesus Christ. Jesus has our best interests at heart. He's the only thing that died and rose again for us. Now we see that even in this parable. The rich man tries one more thing 
to, to get his brothers out of this predicament. He says, okay, okay, Abraham. So they've not listened to the word of God. But I promise you, Abraham, if you send somebody from the dead, then surely they're going to believe. And Abraham says in verse 31, even then they won't believe. Even then they won't believe. And why does Jesus include this in this little story? Well, Jesus, of course, knows that he is going to die and rise again. Jesus is, Jesus is set on a, on a one-way street to the cross for you. To bear all of the stuff in our life that is wrong so that we don't have to carry it anymore. To take away all of the stuff that we've done wrong, the stuff that's been done wrong to us so that we can be totally free. But he's going to rise again from the dead so that we can have freedom in this life as well as the next. But even then, not everybody will believe. When I was at university, I did my first dissertation on the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. I used no theology, no religion, just whether you can say it's a historical fact, looking at his hard historical evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. And um, you won't be surprised, I'm sure, to hear that I concluded that we can say that it's a historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And yet, I think the evidence is overwhelming, yet lots of people still don't believe. Now, what is Jesus getting at here? He's getting at that for Christians, the only thing that should define us is the death and resurrection of Jesus. And if you know that, you have true freedom. If you know that, then you can live the most freeing life that you could possibly ever imagine. If you know that, then you can give away the stuff that you've got, not in order to please God or to impress others, but just out of response to his extravagant, amazing love for you. That's why um, here at St. Thomas's, we give so much stuff away for free. Because we know that we've been blessed by God and he's been so generous to us. We just want to bless others in return. Knowing that Jesus died for us and rose again brings us true freedom. It means that we can get out of a cycle of being trapped in religion where we feel we have to do things in order to impress God. You do not have to impress God. There is nothing that you could do that would make God love you any more or any less. He loves you just because he loves you. Knowing that Jesus did this for us frees us to be as generous as we could possibly be because it's all, it all belongs to him anyway. We're just stewards. And so as we start this little adventure together here at St. Thomas's of um, replanting, relaunching, whatever word you want to use, this church next week, our prayer is that we'll behave not like this rich man, but in the opposite way to this rich man, where we'll give everything our whole lives to see the poor blessed, to see those on the margins blessed, to see those that don't know Jesus and his amazing good news to see them invited in to relationship with him. Now, where does that leave you and me? Well, for some of us, um, we're aware that God has given us things. And for some of us, it might not be a lot, but we've all got a roof over our heads. 
So most of us have got kitchens. We can use that to bless other people, invite them around for dinner. We've all been given something that we can use to bless those around us. But it may mean we have to lay some stuff down. I wonder what that could be for me. I wonder what that could be for you. Secondly, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, but you've heard tonight that he loves you so much that he offers you true, lasting freedom. He offers you a way out of being trapped into a cycle of having to impress others and being trapped in a cycle of religion. He died for you and rose again so that you could be free. Perhaps today could be the day that you start following Jesus Christ. And it will be the best thing that you ever do.